Welcome to Ottawa Valley Community Church, where we simply want to help you encounter Jesus, be transformed, and share His love. Um, Hey, we're uh, in this uh, time period past Easter, and uh, looking, really just wanting to track through the rest of the story. Um, Sunday School is doing it as well, so we're actually going to talk about the story of uh, the road to Emmaus today, which is the same thing the kids are doing. I always like it when we're synced up with them. Uh, it's, really, uh, it's really amazing. Uh, but what we're looking at in terms of these stories is a common theme that's through them. Again, we're going to focus on the road to Emmaus, but we're going to ask ourselves the question, what keeps us from seeing Jesus? And we've heard that theme of seeing Jesus a little bit through the, uh, uh, the songs and through some of the talking in between them. And we've been engaged with that a little bit. But when we look at those stories of post-resurrection, we see things like John 10 or 20, 15, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb and uh, Jesus is there talking to her and she doesn't realize it's him. Uh, we see doubting Thomas, his story. He's there. They're in the room all together. Jesus is sort of transported in like Star Trek and enters in, and Thomas still, with Jesus right in front of him, isn't believing his own eyes what he's seeing, so he's uh, checking that out. Uh, John 21, Jesus is on the shore. Uh, They see him there, they know him very well. He says, hey, did you guys catch any fish? And uh, and Jesus, um, uh, they they don't recognize him. Jesus sort of says, hey, throw your net out on the other side, and all of a sudden they realize it's him. And of course, this story of the road, road to Emmaus, and this sort of theme of not recognizing Jesus is kind of repeated like the plot of a Top Gun movie uh, through some of these passages, right? The, a Tom Cruise movie, you know, first he's like a cocktail waiter in the first movie, Cocktail, one of his big ones, right? He's a cocktail uh, maker, he's a pretty good cocktail maker, uh, suddenly he has a crisis of confidence, uh, and he's not a very good cocktail maker anymore, and he meets a beautiful woman, um, and she tells him, you know what, you could be a great cocktail maker, and all of a sudden he's making cocktails again. And then he's a race car driver. He's a pretty good race car driver. And then he has a crisis of confidence. And then he meets a beautiful woman. And she tells him he can be a good race car driver again. And then he's a pilot, right? He's a pretty good pilot. He has a crisis of confidence. He meets a pretty woman who tells him that he can be a good pilot again. I mean, he could be a Scrabble player for all we're talking about, right? Like he could be that guy, you know, he gets a a tray full of vowels. Crisis of confidence, right? And this story is like that. The disciples, he appears to them. Uh, they're deflated. They don't recognize him. They're hurting. Uh, he doesn't want them to be, uh, they don't want to be disciples anymore. They're, they're ready to go back home. Um, he encounters them. He reveals something of himself to them. He shows himself to them uh, through the breaking of bread or various other things in the story. And they come and uh, decide, yeah, we're going to be disciples again. And they go out on mission. And that just theme repeats through. But that question for us, like just to ask as we go through this text is, you know, what is it about Jesus? What is it about my relationship with him that, that I don't see him? Why don't I always see him? Where, where is he? What is this wrestle that I have? I, I, how many of you would say that you are living every day with a high awareness of the presence of the risen Jesus in your life? Jim, 
The rest of us, not so much, <laughs> right? Like, it's a wrestle. We, we live uh, caught in our own minds, caught in our own stuff. And I think he wants to just call us uh, to know him more. And so we're going to read through the story. We're going to read through the story of the road to Emmaus and just unpack, unpack some different things and just ask the Lord to lead us through that. So let's read Luke 24, 13 to 35. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed. I just pulled out a little piece of the text there. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So we went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did our hearts not burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened up the scriptures and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. Let's just pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much for this incredible, incredible book that's been collected and curated and enriches our lives. Thank you so much uh, for what it has to say. I pray that the eyes of our hearts would be open to meet you in the text this morning. I pray that it nourishes us. Uh, And I pray, Father, that we would actually just be able to glory in it, that we would just be able to delight in it, that we would see you on the pages of the text, see your presence in this story, and just worship you. If nothing else happens, would we just glory in you as we read the scriptures, Father? But would you also teach us and transform our hearts and make us new and help us to know you more, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So here we are, uh, the disciples. This is post uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, And we see a little bit uh, earlier in the text, a little bit earlier in the chapter, uh, that while they were sort of grieving and wrestling uh, all together in Jerusalem, wondering what was happening, this was just the day of the resurrection. We heard that some of the women had gone to the tomb and found that it was empty. Um, and had this encounter uh, with the angel in, the, in Luke's account, and they ran back and talked to the disciples, and all of a sudden, uh, we jump in the story uh, to two of the disciples going to a village named Emmaus. And so here they are, they're walking 
down the road uh, about seven miles, which is in the, in the Greek, we actually have 60 stadia. That's a Roman measurement of distance uh, going off to Emmaus. And we think that there's two different locations that that could possibly be. Uh, one is sort of a Roman place called Nicopolis. Uh, and actually looking from Eusebius, one of the early church fathers, looks back at that story and sees that a church was built there, uh, that it was possibly Cleopas's house that became a church, and that sort of legend is there. There's another location to the west, maybe, where people go a little more accurate to the distance, a small settlement that was called Emmaus at one time in antiquity, but then was taken over by Romans, just given away to the soldiers, all the people scared out, no longer became Emmaus and just became a Roman outpost. Um, but what's neat about that name Emmaus is that it might actually have a, a symbolic meaning. Emmaus in the Greek, uh, and actually the Hebrew uh, version of it also, just means hot springs. Just means hot springs. But the Greek for hot spring is a spring of salvation. And so isn't that interesting, just the way uh, Luke tells the story and ties that little detail in, that as these two men are walking away from Jerusalem, away from the cross, not knowing what's about to happen in their lives, they're walking uh, towards a spring of salvation. It's just a little foreshadowing maybe from the writer Luke just telling us that something beautiful uh, is about to happen. And so they're talking with each other. Uh, they're discussing uh, all of the things that had happened. That word for talking in the Greek is two words, symbeo, discussing two things together. And so that's a signal to us that they're actually debating. They're talking back and forth. Maybe one of them believes the women a little bit and one of them doesn't believe the women, but they're wrestling with all of the events uh, that are meant uh, to, to that, are, that have happened together. They're, they're struggling with it. How many of you sort of remember some moments in your lives when you've been in those kinds of uh, intense discussions post an important event? I, I remember after 9-11, um, that was just all we were talking about when the Twin Towers fell. Like, what happened? Who did it? What's going to happen? Is there going to be a war? Like, how do we, what, what, how are, do we, our friends in New York, are the planes ever going to take off again? And they're, they're doing the play-by-play, -play, running through it all. Uh, we did that all with COVID, right? Like, where did this thing come from? Did it come from animals? Did it come from a lab? What's going on? Like, like what's the government going to do? Are we going to be able to take our masks off? It's that thing that is just sort of possessing all of our conversation. It's the stuff that we're thinking about. It's like the post-game uh, deliberation after the Super Bowl, those guys all at the bench talking about the bad call that the ref made, right? It's, it's that kind of intense sort of discussion, speculation, wondering what's going on, and the disciples are replaying that. And they're also probably replaying the miracles. They're replaying the stories of what happened in Jesus' life. They remember that they saw him raise Lazarus from the dead. And they remember the Sermon on the Mount. They remember... Um, you know, him delivering a person who is demonized. They remember uh, the things that he said that were prophetic and that, and that touched them and that, and that sort of blew their minds. And they remember the cross. They remember the triumphal entry and then they remember the cross. They remember him uh, being a person who seemed to them to be a person of so much hope, so much amazing things about to happen in their lives. And all of a sudden he's dead, he's gone and he's gone to the cross. And as they talk with each other, uh, they remember the story of the women coming back and maybe he's alive, like who stole the body? What's going on against that play by play? But what's clear in the text is that very day, these two left the party and decided to go to Emmaus. 
it, it says in Luke 24, 10 to 12, now Mary Magdalene and Johanna, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them like an idle tale. And they did not believe them. And then Peter ran to the tomb. And I think while Peter ran to the tomb, these two guys ran to Emmaus. And I think very often that's the case in our lives. Very often there's something that's hopeful. There's some idea, maybe some miracle, maybe some thought of something Jesus could possibly do in our lives. And while others are excited, I think we sometimes find in our own journey that we're, we're skeptical or we're unsure. At the very least, what we can take from this text is that, men, you'd better listen to the women when they tell you something. <laughs> There's something there, and they missed it, and off they go. And this story, the story of the road to Emmaus, is Jesus rescuing them from their skepticism and, and rescuing them from their doubts. And he goes on, so there they are. They're deep in discussion. They're deep in the post-game analysis. They're deep in the know. And then... Jesus himself drew near. Jesus himself drew near. So imagine this intense conversation as they walk down the road. And I don't know how it really happened. We, we were just reading that into the text. But I can sort of imagine that Jesus kind of came up walking. They're all walking the same direction to Emmaus. Maybe Jesus is coming up behind and walking just a little faster. Comes up behind and he's sort of catching up with them and he's listening in on this conversation. He's listening to them talk about him, listening to them talk about his story, listening to their crazy theories. And I could just kind of imagine this little glint in his eyes as he's like, <clears throat> they just so don't have it right. And I just imagine this sort of delight and love for these two that the Savior probably has in his heart as he, as he comes up on them. And, and just one of the, the questions we have here around why, whether or not they recognized him, uh, I think it's probably answered even by Luke's language in the text here. It says, it, he, he emphasizes this Jesus himself came up to them. Jesus himself came up to them, not Jesus. When, when Jesus appears in different ways, maybe the transfiguration, uh, maybe as we see him in the book of Revelation, that other way of his being is often described. But in this text, it just says Jesus himself came up to them. Right? Not a disguise, I don't think. Not a different shape or a different appearance. Uh, the Jesus that they'd known and walked with for three years just comes up uh, beside them. He probably had the same gait. Uh, he probably had the same personality, the same mannerisms, right? The same speech inflections, the same tone of voice, the same height, the same weight. And something in them, with him being his very himselfness, because of their unbelief, because of uh, what their expectations were of what the cross meant and what death meant, uh, their selfness was unable to recognize his himselfness. And I think that should actually scare us quite a lot. I think that should scare us quite a lot. The idea that Jesus could come in some ways and present him to us as people 
uh, for who he is and his beauty and glory. Speak to us through the scriptures. Speak to us as we pray. And we could see exactly who he is presenting himself as himself and not know him because of our expectations. What it says in the text, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. In the Greek, the eyes of them were held not to know him. Their eyes were held not to know him. Now, there's no uh, actor in this text. There's no uh, description of a person uh, doing that. There's no description of anybody holding their eyes. I think the person who's holding their eyes is them. Uh, We look at that whenever, of course, Jesus is revealing himself in the scriptures, or even when God is intentionally making someone blind, that's actually happening. Like, I don't think Jesus is making them blind. I don't think Jesus is covering their eyes here. Uh, In Genesis 19, the man who came to Lot's door, it's clearly described how he makes them blind. Deuteronomy 28, God smites them with madness and blindness, the enemies of the people. Uh, 2 Kings 6.6, Elisha in the battle with Aramaeans. Uh, They strike the enemy blind. Uh, Acts 19, when Paul sees Jesus in his brightness and his glory, and and Jesus Jesus says to Paul, look at who, I'm the one whom you're persecuting. And Paul is stricken blind. He's healed three days later. The details described are that blindness. 2 Corinthians 4.4, God has blinded the minds of unbelievers. God's not given credit in this text. And later, Jesus challenges them, and he says, oh, you who are slow of heart. So I don't think Jesus is going to rebuke them for something he's done to them. I think this blindness is something of their own, something they own, and I think we should take that on board. Our own blindness to the things of Jesus is something that we have to own. Um, And and then we see this really neat Greek rhetorical device. We see it in Plato and in other places where it says, I'm telling you the truth. This is an orator speaking to the people, making a case-making argument. I'm telling you the truth, but your mind is held not to know. I think that's the case in our society, and I think that's the case in us, that our minds are often held not to know. And that word for holding uh, is the same word that the rulers used uh, when they seized Jesus. It's the same word when he was arrested. And I think sometimes our unbelief, I think sometimes our doubt, I think sometimes our desire not to see, our desire not to change, is something that we use as a cage to hold our mind and hearts in and keep Jesus from introducing change into our lives. We hold our minds not to know. There's a legal term for that, for that willing blindness that I think we need to own. Uh, It's when an unaccused individual has deliberately shut their eyes to knowledge of possession and or knowledge or use of illicit illegal substances. A person knows about the crime that's been committed. They knows about the things that are going on, but claims not to know. Uh, says that they deliberately shuts their eyes. And it says the law can deem this as the equivalent of actual knowledge. (laughs) And I think we, when we close our minds to the change that Jesus wants to do in our lives, I think he can look at us and say, uh, you know what, that is the equivalent of knowledge. You 
really do actually know what's going on. Soren Kierkegaard says it like this, there are two ways to be fooled. One is to believe what isn't true. The other is to refuse what is. Right? Is there anything in you and in me that is sometimes refusing to believe the thing that Jesus is calling to us and speaking over us? Anyway, I think this should concern us. It is possible for us to think we know Jesus and think we know him really well and actually not be open to recognizing his coming at all. Right? It's possible for us to blind ourselves, to hold our minds captive in our unbelief and not accept that thing that he has to say to us. And so I just want to take a pause right here in the message. It gets a little more hopeful after this. Uh, But we need to recognize blindness in our lives and sometimes recognize willful blindness that we struggle with. Let's just just open our, our, our hearts and pray. Lord, I I believe that there is something of yourself that you want to reveal to us this morning. Something of yourself that you want to reveal to each of us. We are like those disciples. We are happy to discuss the play-by-play as though we know the answers. As though we know how the game went. And our minds and our hearts are closed uh, to knowing the fullness of who you are. Whatever the more is that you want to show us of yourself, Father, we just ask that you would open our hearts and we confess uh, our blindness. Would you open us to see you in ways that change us? Would you open our hearts to see you in ways that transform us and make us new? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so deep breath. (laughs) Knowing that to be true about ourselves, there's grace. And so Jesus meets the disciples in this place of of unbelief, of doubt, of skepticism, of not believing he's there. And he comes alongside and he asks this question, which I think is amazing. Uh, What is this conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? Jesus knows what they're talking about. Jesus knows the story of the cross. He knows everything that they've witnessed. He's in his resurrected body. He's aware. Uh, He's been on the other side. He knows what's going on, and he meets them at this place of their grief and their disappointment. They just kind of, as he asks the question, it says, and they stood still, looking sad. And he meets them in that place of blindness and that place of grief and, and unbelief. And in his love, he just enters into that and enters into asking questions. And I think you can be comforted with the idea that Jesus is going to be patient with you. And he's going to probably enter into where you're at. He's going to enter into your doubt. He's going to enter into your confusion. He's going to enter into all of these assumptions these guys made and enter into the assumptions that you have about him. And I think he has a great way of just kind of asking questions. Just, what are you guys about what are what are you thinking about then one of them named Cleopas answered him again just a reference this person Cleopas we see from the John account that his wife or his wife Mary was gathered at the foot of the cross of Jesus 
So this grief is probably close to Cleopas. We imagine he was like the other disciples, sort of hiding out at the back, watching the crucifixion. His wife was at the foot of the cross, and we imagine they got together in the days between the cross and the resurrection and discussed this. And she shared her heart, and she shared her grief, and she shared what he saw up close. So the death of Jesus Christ was probably very real to him. Uh, but still, even then, he, he kind of smack talks Jesus here. Right? Like, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know? <laughs> right? He's saying this to Jesus. Right? He's saying this to the risen Lord who was there, who saw it all, who, as though he doesn't know what happened to himself. He, he calls him a visitor to the city, the city that he owns, the city that he died for, the city that he's king of. Cleopas calls him a visitor to the city. He's so blind to who Jesus is, but Jesus just patiently, uh, in the middle of their grief and in the middle of their upset and their disquiet, he's just sitting there and letting them ask that question. And, and he says, what, what things? Tell me more about this. Like, why is Jesus asking this question? He's like leading them on. He's bringing them further into the story. He's building intimacy with them. And he says, uh, what is these things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet and mighty indeed. And we know there from that piece that they've got it wrong. He wasn't a prophet. He was the son of God. He was mighty indeed, absolutely. But they didn't really know who he was. They'd walked with him for three years and they'd seen his crucifixion and they'd heard uh, his teaching and they just didn't know who he was. From the end of the story, we know that they were part of the group of people that were in the upper room when he did the Last Supper, right? And they didn't know who he was. But he just lets them ask those questions, even though they've diminished him to being just a prophet. They've forgotten that he's the son of God because he's died. He's not the one who's going to save them. He's not the military commander who's going to make their lives all right and kick the Romans out of Israel. And off they go to Emmaus walking with this person. And the Lord, in his gentleness, just enters into that with them. And, and if you look at your life, and, and, and if I look at my life, I think there are lots of moments where we're pretty sure of what we know and we're pretty sure of what's happening and we're fairly confident uh, in our understanding of the story, maybe our understanding of the grief that we're in or the struggle or whatever it is. And I think very often Jesus can be just standing side by side, listening gently, asking questions, and I imagine in a holy way kind of rolling his eyes a little bit. Right? Um, you know, there's, there's moments when we've seen the church moving in power, you know, our story of being in Toronto, where, you know, we're seeing the church move in, in power, we're seeing miracles, we're seeing healings, we're seeing deliverance. And at the same time, we're woefully unaware of our pride and unconcerned with the character of Christ in the midst of it. We think we know, but we don't know. Uh, there were times I thought I had pretty high capacity as a leader, traveling around the country, ministering in other churches while my own church at home was struggling and wrestling. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I couldn't see what was happening. Uh, times when I thought I was moving wisdom, only to have Jesus later reveal that I was moving in the power of my own self-justification. <laughs> Anybody been there? 
right? Uh, times when I thought I was doing pretty good at teaching my children and, and being a good dad when they really uh, needed somebody not to be lecturing at them and needing somebody to listen. And here, my Heavenly Father looking in on my bad parenting, loving me gently. And so I just want us to just wrestle for a moment with the reality that we can be in that place of knowing and being in that place of being confident of where we're at and knowing the story. I think you've had those moments too where, where God has just revealed to you something beautiful about himself in your journey. And you didn't know what he'd revealed to you before he revealed it to you. And so if you're in that place this morning where you are, are really confident, sometimes some of you are listening to this sermon going, I totally get this. This is right on. Like, he, he's, he's, yes, those other people sitting beside me really need to hear that one. <laughs> right? So a lot of us evaluate our sermons through that framework, right? That was a really good sermon if I agreed with it. That's not a good sermon if you agree with it. It's a good sermon if it challenges you, right? And so we have this high sense of, oh, yeah, I really, I feel, yeah, this is really good. I feel like I've become quite mature. I'm, I've really grown. I'm sure glad all the other people are hearing this thing. That's the moment God is standing beside you, nodding his head, asking you questions, and maybe rolling his eyes a little bit. If you're standing back confidently looking on something Jesus revealed to you about himself, I promise you there's another moment of revelation straight ahead. Because <laughs> we do not know him like we think we do. There is so much more. And that's where they're at in this moment. And Jesus just so gently and so kindly. I, I imagine kindness in his voice. Maybe he really slammed them. I don't know. But let's just pretend that I know what I'm talking about. And he's speaking really kindly. And he just kind of says, oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. Oh, foolish Aaron, and slow of heart to believe. That word foolish ones is, uh, is, is not like stupid and dumb. I think that's what we think of when we think of stupid. It's just uh, of foolish. It's just stupid and dumb and, and not intelligent or something like that. And that's not what he's saying in this text here. But he's saying uh, somebody who is not mindful. Someone who is not thinking it through. Someone who is not reasoning through. Someone who is not doing the work. And I think that that's a little challenge to us in the text, right? I think sometimes about our journey with Jesus and, and walking with him and knowing better. Do we take the time to reason through? Do we take the time to think through? Uh, how many of us take any time at all to think, period, these days? <laughs> right? Like, honestly, like, we have, my phone's not with me, but, you know, how, how, how much time do I spend with information coming off that screen or into my ears? Just a constant, constant flow of input, new information, new things coming into my mind. When do I turn all of that off? And, and think through the scripture, think through the text, think through the mystery of who Jesus is. Do, or do we take time to do that? Even our devotions, our devotions are very often designed to help us consume content and hopefully maybe have a heart response. But do we take time to reason through? Do we take time in silence to think through? And so I think there's just a little challenge for us there. Oh, foolish ones. 
And then slow of heart. Slow of heart in the text there doesn't just mean uh, to, to respond with the feels. Like the heart thing, that doesn't just mean respond with the feels. Like I should be immediately responsive to a truth and immediately feel, that's not what it's talking about in the text. I think that's great. I love it when I have an emotional response to the beauty of God as I'm preparing these sermons. I'm like Sam Gamgee going through Mordor with this guy, poor Sam Gamgee, bursting into tears all the time. Uh, and so I, I respond emotionally. I'm a bit of an emotional guy. But that word for heart in, in the scriptures, as we see it even reflected in the Old Testament, is like David was a man after, described in First Samuel 13 as a man after God's own heart. What that means is to have uh, the inclinations, uh, the disposition, and, and actually the inner commitments. We are slow to shift our inner commitments in response to who Jesus is. Right? That word for slow is like a Greek onomatopoeia, brados, brados. It's one of those lumbering words that sounds like how we walk. And, and I think that that's how we are in terms of shifting the inner inclinations of our hearts. We're plodding in it sometimes. We are resistant. We are slow to revector. As David talked about last week, slow to pivot. Right? And so I think there's something about our hearts that we need to be willing and able to allow ourselves to shift our posture in response to a revelation of who Jesus is. And so that's what he challenges them. And you are show, slow to shift your heart. And I think for us, some of us would say we're heart people. Some of us would say we're mind people. These disciples were neither. And we're probably neither. <laughs> If you think you're a heart person, I sort of think I'm a heart person and a head person. I think just challenge yourself to say, I want to be a Jesus person. I want a heart that is inclined towards him, and I want a mind uh, that is willing to reason through to find him and to see the truth that's before me. And so he says, oh, foolish ones, slow of heart. And then beginning... Uh, with Moses and all the prophets, he interprets to them. And so you can just imagine Jesus walking with them. They're probably well-schooled in the Hebrew scriptures. And he's walking down with the, the road with them. And he says, hey, remember the story of Moses in the little basket? Uh, he, was, he was facing death and, and the midwives sort of put him, his mother put him in the water and through the waters of the river Nile, he came to a place of life and a place of purpose. See reflection of the resurrection in that. Uh, look at the story of the Passover, uh, the Passover lamb, uh, blood of lamb sprinkled over the lintel. See the reflection of the cross in that. My suffering so that the wrath of God would pass over you. Do you see? Did you see me in that part of the story of Moses? Oh, remember when the children of Israel were delivered from the uh, Egyptian army and crossed the Red Sea and baptized through the Red Sea, through the waters, just like I went through death and emerged on the other side to new life. And then the people fell again and were baptized again through the waters of the River Jordan and into new life in the promised land. 
reflections in the scripture, the suffering servant in Isaiah. Remember Isaiah, let's talk about that text. Can you see Jesus in that? Can you see him in that? Um, and Elijah's raising the young boy in 1 Kings, Elisha, uh, the woman of Shuna, uh, the body who touched Elisha's bones, these reflections of the resurrection in the prophets. And Jesus just begins walking with them, unpacking all of these things and saying, hey, these scriptures applied to that Jesus. Do you recognize me yet? And their eyes are still blind, but he, I think we should draw enormous encouragement from this reality that Jesus, like, like, okay, do you get this? Jesus himself, remember the inflections of his voice, the gait of his walk, his height, his build, his smells, his tone of voice. Jesus, who was present right in front of them, was using the scriptures to evangelize them to himself. We should be extremely confident that Jesus is revealed in the scriptures. We should be extremely confident in this book. And I've heard Christians say so many times, you know, sure, when you go, maybe go do evangelism, but don't go beating people up with the Bible. Do evangelism, but leave the Bible behind. Nobody trusts it or believes it anyway. It's utter nonsense. It's utter nonsense. In the scriptures is the power for people to see the reality and the beauty of who Jesus was. If Jesus used the scriptures to evangelize his own people to himself, surely we can be confident in the word of God. Surely we can be confident in this book. And if you as a person are wrestling with Jesus, wrestling with his reality, wrestling with who he is, man, just, just open the book. Like, just open the book. Take out your, your earpods, or whatever you call them, earbuds. Take out your whatever it is. Take off Netflix and just begin to read the book. You can be so confident. Uh, Abdu Murray was, was just a story. was a, was a, a Muslim evangelist. Uh, somebody who he delighted in just taking Christians who were immature and naive and, and sort of taking their faith and destroying it. And one of the questions he would always ask them is, is so deep, what do you believe? Do you believe in, in this Jesus person or do you just believe in your tradition? And, and he would see that many, many Christians had this belief and this attachment to Christianity that was based on their tradition. Uh, not as much uh, on this revelation of the person of Jesus, but this evangelist, uh, from Mus this Muslim evangelist had somebody knock on his door once, and, and it was two Christians evangelizing him. And they knocked on his door and came in, and he says, you know, I could tell that they loved me, and they really wanted me to go to heaven, and so I could trust them. And they could tell that I loved them, and I wanted them to go to heaven, so... Uh, it began a conversation, and I guess he described a short while later, uh, uh, he was walking down the street, and a Gideon gave him a Bible. And he said, I, I read the Bible, and I, and I opened it up to Luke 3, and I saw Jesus uh, challenging people, saying, hey, if you trust that Moses is your father, 
is that, is that really it for you? Is, is it really just about you being a people who are uh, friends with Moses, who know Moses, who have Moses in your lineage, in your background? Or, or do you really have a relationship? And he asked himself those questions about his Muslim faith. Do I really have any kind of relationship? Is anything real here? Or am I just a Muslim because of my tradition? And he began to open up the scriptures. It says he took nine years of studying the scriptures. Nine years of looking at the story of the resurrection, looking for contradictions, looking for uh, untruths, looking for things that he could use to just dismiss the whole thing. And it says the moment of his conversion, he had a stack of books on his left that were books uh, that were uh, apologetics for Islam and a stack of books on his right uh, that were uh, apologetics for Christianity and a Bible in front of him. And in the end, after nine years, he read for the umpteenth time the story of the resurrection. And he believed. And I think for us, if we are wrestling with unbelief and wrestling with doubt, we have to go back to the book and, and, and just let Jesus convert ourselves, convert us to himself through that. And so Jesus is going on and they're walking and he's speaking. And it says, as they drew near to the village to which they were going, he acted as if he were going further. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it's toward evening and the day is now spent. So he went in to stay with them. And I just love that Jesus kind of, <laughs> he kind of leads them on here a little bit, doesn't he? He's kind of playing hard to get with them at this point. We know from later in the text that their hearts are burning as they read, they, as they listen to him. There's something about this conversation that's compelling. And, and he makes like he is about to move on. He's going further. I think maybe Jesus sometimes could play a little bit of hard to get with us. Kind of like, let's just make them press in a little bit more. Let's just not make this too easy. Let's teach them to fight for the truth. And so he comes and he... He, he sort of fakes, he's going further. They urge him strongly, stay with us. And so he went in and stayed with them. And, and I just want you to be also confident that Jesus, I think, will respond to your offer of hospitality. I think very often that's actually just what he's looking for in our lives, is for us to just be people who are hospitable to him. People who want him there. People who are hungry to have his presence in their lives. I just won't say a lot more of that, but Simon read it early in, 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 in the worship time, Revelation 3:20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. And I think the Lord wants that kind of relationship with you, that kind of intimacy and that kind of conversation. He longs to have that with you. And then... And this is where the revelation comes. He's at the table with them. He took the bread. He blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And we can, we can sort of think through what that was probably like as Jesus was there at the table with them. And he would have said the traditional blessing uh, over the bread that would happen at a Hebrew meal. Blessed are you, Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech halam chamotzi lachem mim haretz. 
And Jesus just speaks this blessing, or maybe he's saying it to them. And he breaks the bread. And you can imagine that moment. As he breaks the bread, and he stretches out his arms to hand it to them, that this is the moment where his sleeves slide up, his forearms, and they see the scars in his wrists. And their eyes alight on the scars. Za hagev shol shivar vasha velech. This is my body, which is broken for you. We don't know that he uttered those words, but I can only imagine that at that moment, they're taken back to the upper room and the blindness falls off their eyes and they know they're standing in the presence of their risen savior. And that's the moment Jesus wants for you. Wants a moment where your heart is hospitable to Him. A moment where your heart is open and where He comes as His broken, resurrected, life filled man to speak and breathe life into you, to reveal Himself to you, to transform you to make you new and to send you forward on the mission that he has for you. And so we just see that moment, that revelation in their eyes. We see their eyes light up and he vanishes from their sight. That's all he wanted from them. He wanted them to know him. He wanted them to know him. And he wants you to know him. He wants intimacy with you. And friendship with you. And fellowship with you. It's no wonder that for centuries Christians have met him most powerfully at this table. This is why we hold this as precious. And I don't know why we don't do it every week. Will you gather at the table with Jesus? Will you break bread with him? Will you let him enter into your life and sup with you? Simon, you and the team can come forward. We're going to sing a song called, uh, just, it's a simple song, it's an old song, just calling us to open and asking Jesus to open the eyes of our hearts, asking Jesus to just open our eyes to see him. Remember the thought that we started with, I promise that it is true for every one of us, there is an area in your life where you have not yet met the resurrected Jesus. 
What is that area for you? Where do you need to know him? Where have you kept him at bay? Where have you held yourself in willful blindness? He wants to know you there. He wants to meet you there. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of Ottawa Valley Community Church, visit ovchurch.ca.